This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Something terrible happened this week, but it's been happening for quite some time. In just 12 hours, a star anchorman who delivered the news to thousands of American living rooms lost his job because of sexual misconduct allegations. The New York Times, a paper of record regardless of whether you believe them to be fake news or not, had to bench a White House correspondent over sexual misconduct allegations. Multiple members of Congress had allegations rise and mount against them, and it was revealed that the U.S. taxpayer is actually paying out some of the hush money or sexual misconduct settlement outcomes on behalf of some of these members of Congress. And spoiler alert, for as disgusted as we may all be from this, many, many more allegations are coming. Sexual impulses, actions, uncontrolled and unwanted. There's a huge problem in America and with the human race in which folks feel privileged, abled, even okay to leverage their power, their roles, their position, their authority in this absurdly malicious way. And conversation is not enough. Once the allegations continue to roll, and once we all stare ourselves as a society in the mirror with the real hard look, we have to start asking ourselves, what are these trusted institutions going to do about it? How is Congress actually going to ensure that voted in or not voted in, that we are not seating individuals that are accused of child molestation? What are newsrooms going to do to make sure that the individual or young copy editor or young intern doesn't necessarily have to live at the receiving end of an individual's unwanted advances just to escalate his or her own career? And that industry towns where there's powerful entities that can leverage their success and their access to jobs and money aren't leveraging or dangling that over other human beings with the prospect of some greater or greener tomorrow. We must stop this conversation and we must move to action and implementation that actually builds greater empathy between men and women, that actually puts a pause on the way men think they are being viewed in this world and actually starts building a bridge and a ladder into the way that women are actually viewing them in this world, how they feel treated in this world. And frankly, we need to have this conversation among those that are most affected. It's really, really hard because the bravery demonstrated in the last few weeks alone as more and more of these stories have come forward have been stories of courage just as much as they have been stories of triumph and just as much as they have been stories of heartache. It is no doubt that these conversations are hard to have, but we need to have them. What happens though when the people who have a chance to start that healing with additional dialogue, with additional deliberation and additional mindfulness – start to get complicit in that behavior? What happens if the individuals that we would look to to actually have a rhyme or reason or a path forward start to actually ignore the bad that has occurred and just simply move on with their day? That becomes a real problem, not only for trust and institution, but for the way that tribes of support, tribes of politics, and frankly, tribes of rhetoric start to get formed. And as a Democrat who hosts this podcast, 
it's really important that we get beyond just the self-contained liberalism that can often overcome my point of view or that can often overcome a response to many of these allegations. We've got Tim Miller, longtime Republican operative and advisor to former presidential candidates, his views on what we actually do when moral institution is crumbling and how we actually have to get past a concept of self-segregating in this country in order to really understand a core American identity. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. On the pod today, we've got Tim Miller. Tim specializes in communications and digital strategy, serving as the comms director for Jeb Bush's presidential run in 2016, was a senior advisor to the GOP's leading anti-Trump super political action community or super PAC, Our Principles, and was the co-founder of America Rising LLC and the America Rising PAC. Uh, Tim, welcome to American Enough. Hey, good to be with you, man. I uh, really appreciate you being here. Um, we should also note that in addition to um, his, his extensive experience as a Republican operative and political strategist, um, he is also a representative of uh, Crooked Media, where he served as a commentator on Pod Save America and several other pod verticals across that media space. So glad that you could now be a friend of this pod. I'm a pod um, entrepreneur. I guess I... All these pods. Entrepreneur. If only indeed, that was paying the bill. Indeed, indeed. Indeed. Although I feel like uh, one of your co-hosts over there has talked about how, how they're all quickly becoming media moguls. So maybe there is a way to, to monetize this. Uh, yeah, I think they're figuring it out. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> um, well, we really appreciate you joining uh, today. And um, uh, as our listeners know, uh, on this podcast, we're really trying to understand how uh, basic tenets of American identity um, are being shaped by the current political landscape, but also a lot of the rhetoric involved in that landscape. And this week, um, we've had some very, very stunning revelations, um, both from a, a politician's point of view, but also when it comes to understanding the identity of America's voice overseas. Um, so let's start on the more political side Tim, um, you know, we we saw some stunning revelations this week where within just a 12 short 12 hours, um, elites lost their star anchorman. Uh, The New York Times benched a star Trump reporter and Congress moved one step closer to losing a star Democratic senator. Um, And this, of course, all falls on the heels of um, really, really tragic accusations of sexual assault, um, inappropriate behavior towards women, and just overall lewd commentary coming out of the mouths of individuals that we would hope and supposed to really be um, moral icons or at least grounded in some moral authority as they assume public roles and public office. So from your perspective, Tim, um, when it comes to America's moral authority, um, is it okay for us as a country to look the other way when it comes to allegations of a lawmaker or an aspiring lawmaker um, who is being accused of violating the law if this has occurred many moons ago or if there are competing voices here? I guess I just want to know what your thoughts are on the concept of being a public servant in this country is when there is a, a growing um, rancor around how those public servants act behind closed doors. 
Yeah, you know, look, I'm uh, pretty uh, pessimistic and uh, and have very dark shaded glasses when it comes to uh, the state of things. So uh, I'll start on a rare optimistic note on that point, and that is, you know, well, I think that all of us are are sickened by the um, one after another uh, news uh, from the past few few weeks and months um, about uh, sexual assault from men and, and, and powerful positions in public life, um, it actually is a sign of progress that this is happening right now and that this is being uh, publicized right now and that women are speaking out and that colleagues are speaking out. And, uh, you know, certainly I, I was reading an old article yesterday about some of the behavior of, of Ted Kennedy and Chris Dodd, you know, two men that I, I'm a Republican, obviously, I think your Democrat listeners probably, you know, admire these these guys for their public service. But, you know, so their behavior with women was appalling. Um, uh, and, you know, the way they used their office was appalling. And so, you know, does that taint their public service? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, does that uh, mean that, you know, every kind of legislative accomplishment that they made was for naught? No. You know, I mean, life is, is shades of gray uh, in these sort of scenarios. So, you know, I do think that it's a positive development that, that, these, that people are coming out. I think that there are clear lines, which I'm sure we're going to get into, where, where you know, people cannot serve in public office, um, you know, based on their behavior. Uh, and then I think that there are going to be other situations where there are gray lines, where everybody has to make a moral choice for themselves about whether, you know, someone can have personal flaws um, and still serve uh, in public life. And, um, you know, those are the things that we're going to have discussions about, and hopefully we can have discussions about them in good faith. Uh, and that is what takes me to the more concerning part about our um, about this, which is it's good that this is out of the public, but the discourse around it um, seems to be, you know, largely in bad faith, particularly in the political uh, setting. Absolutely. And I, I think I couldn't agree more with you when you say that this is a, a, a time in which more and more uh, individuals feel comfortable um, coming forward with, you know, what is, to be very frank, a very difficult and challenging, and I'm sure even, um, you know, kind of a, a, an uncomfortable way of bringing out very personal interactions in their own lives, whether it occurred recently or whether it occurred a long time ago. And I should say that, you know, having two men uh, talk about whether or not they're, you know, you know, what the state of play of that audacity is, is like is, you know, kind of maybe hypocritical, sure. or problematic in its own right. But um, it is it does also underscore, you know, having two men in this conversation, what the role of men can be in these types of dialogues, particularly those um, like you who have publicly um, spoken out against this behavior. Um, you know, very recently you wrote about one such individual um, who is running for a a seat out in Alabama, uh, Judge Roy Moore. Uh, who has been accused of going after individuals who are incredibly young um, several years ago, but still um, indicating a pattern of almost going after women in how some people are characterizing it as a pedophilic sort of tendency. And in that way of you talking about um, uh, Roy Moore, the, Judge Moore's actions, um, we saw two things happen in the last 24 hours. Um, 
One, you, a, a noted Republican operator and commentator, um, actually uh, came out in support of his opponent, Democratic Doug Jones, although you were pretty clear about various areas of policy in which you disagreed with Doug. You said that there was a very, very clear line in terms of the moral sand that you would not cross in supporting a Republican in this seat blindly. Um, and also within those 24 hours, we saw President Trump come out and, you know, really speak and honor the fact that uh, Roy Moore denies a lot of these allegations. So I guess my question is whether you're an individual civilian citizen um, or you're the president of the United States, um, as men, as individuals who, you know, fortunately have not been on the receiving end of, of these allegations or at least these even these perpetrations, what is the role that we have when these conversations come up, um, both in terms of political life, but also just as, as everyday citizens? Yeah, sure. I, mean, I think to get directly to that question, let's table Roy Moore just for a second. We can get into that disgusting pig uh, kind of down the line because his <laughs> his behavior is just so far beyond, beyond the pale that you know it's it's a little bit separate from I think the broader discussion about um, you know the role of men um, in speaking out against you know sexual harassment, sexual abuse uh, among their colleagues and and in the workplace because you know I think that. Um, you know, there's a, you know, on uh, clearly from the Republican and conservative side, many of my ally, friends and colleagues are guilty of, you know, taking the outrage machine to 11 anytime a liberal male is, uh, you know, accused of sexual harassment, but then, you know, trying to accuse it away anytime a, a Republican is. And, and so, you know, I mean, that sure. is you know, extremely you know, obviously, you know, tribalistic and damaging to our discourse. You know, but on the left, I think there's another problem. And, and I think this is actually, you know, in, in some ways more interesting of a conversation because it's, it's, it's more nuanced um, than the clear um, hypocrisy that's happening on the right. And that is, I think that a lot of men use their advocacy for, um, you know, uh, uh, for women's rights and, you know, their advocacy for you know, what, what, whatever the issue is, equal pay um, to as a, you know, kind of shield against their own behavior. And there's, you know, there's been a long line of this. And I think you saw it kind of in the most comedic way, you know, darkly comedic uh, with Harvey Weinstein when he when he was first accused and he came out and said, I'm going to channel all this anger against the NRA. Right. As if that was going to be this kind of amulet that got him away from being a rapist, that he was going to be able to attack the NRA. And, you know, it's on smaller right. levels. You see this a little bit with Al Franken and, you know, with um, with Bill Clinton and with, you know, there are other you know, people who aren't as famous like Josh Whedon. And so, you know, I think that it's, it, while it is important you know, for men to speak out and speak out clearly about this. Um, you know, we also need to be careful about, um, a, like you said, you know, ensuring that, that women's voices are heard on this and that we, and that, and that, that nobody gets a pass, you know, for their behavior, um, just because of their language. Um, you know, they need to go, they need to go hand in hand. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned that, um, after a kind of short period of, Sort of rallying around the flag against sexual abuse, uh, we're now headed down a path towards, 
you know, a tribalistic response to, to sexual abuse. Yeah, and in a response that um, where there are very, very uh, concerning downstream impacts, right, in which, you know, if one part of that tribe wants to, quote unquote, overcorrect um, or overrotate to the extent in which if you're a, a business executive or, um, you know, a notable um, male entity who is now all of a sudden afraid of taking a business trip, if you will, um, with a female executive or a female colleague, then that would start creating a chilling environment for women in the workplace to even just do their job, for example. Or alternatively, another form of tribalism is in which you create this chorus of individuals that support um, the those that are making the allegations versus those that um, you know support those that are you know denying the allegations, as opposed to actually piercing through in all of these instances, political or not, business or not, what is actually motivating this disastrous behavior, and how can we actually start creating bridges of empathy between people who are motivated to act in different ways? Yeah, you know, the motivation of this is power, and it's a power dynamic. And obviously, there's, you know, sex is wrapped up in this and, you know, desire. But if you look at what, you know, the anecdotes are about most of these men, the kind of the gross, deep particulars of them, um, what you find is that, you know, a lot of them are getting, you know, pleasure from, you know, making women, you know, feel inferior and from um, flaunting their power. And so, you know, the only way to, to, you know, kind of fix that is to, you know, kind of, is to be mindful of changing, you know, those power dynamics, which is a much harder problem and which is a much, you know, is a much more longer term, um, uh, uh, you know, commit challenge yeah, challenge that we're going to have yeah. to kind of work through, right? The easy part is to just come out and say, you know, hey, sexual harassment, sexual harassers are terrible. Um, but how do you then change, you know, the environment that that women are in so that they, like you said, have have path towards success and are not, you know, kept out of, and are, we don't return to a period where they're, you know, kind of separate from the boys' club. Um, and where the power dynamics are, are more of equal playing ground. Uh, and, um, you know, that's that's, you know, that's a challenge that's far above my pay grade. No, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, the challenges run very, very deep, both in terms of um, basic education um, at a young age and, and well throughout our lives about the dynamics between men and women. Um, also, basic understanding of what is appropriate and not appropriate, regardless of your power or your position in life. Um, and those are, are very, very deep or have very deep psychological underpinnings um, that we all have a responsibility to be more thoughtful about and, frankly, to discuss more out in the open. Like you said in the beginning, um, it's a great environment in which women of all stripes and backgrounds feel more comfortable, um, but it's tough stuff. It's tough to come forward. And so part of that dialogue is not just, as you said, to come up with some real systemic changes to how we approach dynamics in the workplace or dynamics in relationships, but it also comes down to how other individuals, particularly individuals that have large bully pulpits or audiences or are perceived to have moral authority, how those individuals actually opine on these matters. And I don't mean to undercut these issues and pivot to politics because this is <laughs> more say, bigger than just politics. Coming. We made it 15 minutes. And now you can and feel now it we coming. have to start talking about the asshole president. That's fine. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, and I, 
And I, I, I don't mean that in that it in a way that this is just about what the president does or does not say. But you know, zooming out a little bit, the White House um, individuals in a position of admiration, respect, and authority, um, they do have a role to play in terms of how the nation grieves, heals, or dissects these issues. Uh, right now, though, it does seem that when you have an individual that, as you said, picks a tribe or chooses one side versus the other, it sort of farts away or loses a chance to really unpack um, the these issues in a more deliberative way. Is what Donald Trump said this week, um, coming down on one side, creating a factional tribe, is that uh, an important moment in the conversation around these power dynamics and, and sexual assault? Or is it more about just pure politics and the tactical play of retaining a Senate seat? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's almost hard to kind of insert Donald Trump into the dialogue that we were just having because he's not really interested in it. You know, he he doesn't have a nuanced kind of view of this. Um, uh, you know, his his view is is that uh, um, he's a celebrity and he's famous and he's powerful and so he gets to do anything he wants. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't kind of ascribe any any thinking to to you know his. Um, position on this. He's just, you know, doing whatever uh, advances his selfish short-term interests at any given time. Uh, But yeah, it is in a bigger picture, a meaningful moment because, you know, I I think that we've all in certain, in a certain sense, lost our ability to be shocked in the last two years because there've been so many shocking things happen that it's kind of moved the Overton window, if you will, for what Right. Uh, constitutes, you know, um, something worth getting, you know, really upset about. But the fact that the president of the United States could not clearly and plainly um, uh, condemn somebody for molesting children, molesting young girls, is so far beyond anybody's imagination in our lifetimes, you know, we're, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't want to guess your age where I'm in my mid thirties, right? <laughs> There's not been any president <laughs> in my life. I'm old enough, Tim. In I'm our lifetimes enough. who, who you would expect something, anything even near that kind of behavior. If you'd have said to me in 2014 that there's going to be a president in your lifetime that, that enables child molestation and that, that cannot give a clear, pro or con position on child molestation or on uh, on on you know nazi rallies uh, you know I, I would have had trouble processing that that was something that was going to happen in this country and that's how outrageous it is and um you know when it comes to to roy moore uh you know and trump is just thinking of this in purely the political sense you saw there's a cnn article um yesterday that i, I meant to tweet i might share that after this back to this podcast where he where, where his staff said exactly what we're talking about, that it was the cover provided by Al Franken and Mark Halperin and Harvey Weinstein uh, that sort of muddied the waters in this discussion about sexual assault in such a way that allowed the president, but gave him the cover to not have to take a position on, on Roy Moore. Because if Roy Moore was alone in the news, it would have been a lot more stark. And uh, that is just despicable. That um, that they are using, you know, the behavior of other um, uh, of other men, other men's bad behavior to justify the defense and cover of somebody 
who took a 14-year-old girl on what he called a date uh, and brought her and, 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 and went into the living room of his home and got into his tidy whities and started to molest her. Like, that is sick. And, and the, the president came out yesterday and just said, oh, well, you know, there are lots of people that are having issues right now. Um, is, is really beyond the pale, and, and it does have, a, like you said, a downstream impact because it, get, it creates this permission structure for others, for people, you know, in our society to say, well, you know, the president said it's not a big deal, so it's not a big deal. That matters. It does matter. And, I, I, you know, as someone with your communications experience over the years working for folks that have had loud megaphones, microphones, and platforms, I guess – I'm curious what this actually means for individuals who view um, the moral authority or the trust in institution of a White House or of a presidency when when those types of a- actions are condoned or overlooked um, versus this concept of tribes that you mentioned earlier. And more specifically, I mean, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike um, have both been culpable in the last two years, frankly, for quite some time, but particularly in the last two years for being dismissive of others, judging others, vilifying others, and saying that um, your position is simply political or you're not rationalizing my position. Um, and it's creating a, a pretty large riff in the country. Now, that's an obvious statement. But when you have a president that speaks out in this way and actually justifies the behavior on account of, well, the guy denied it, or justifies the behavior of uh, neo-Nazis and hate speech because there are quote-unquote, two sides to every story. Um, How do you then go from a point in which you're communicating positions and people feel, well, they're just telling the truth, they're just being honest, they're just saying what they feel, um, go from that type of landscape where it's so easy to create tribes and factions between groups to a place in which you're you know, building more bridges and building more connectivity to understand where different people are coming from. Is that a lost cause altogether? Or is there a way for us to win as a country and win back our moral authority by creating more pals and having more of an understanding among one another? It might be a lost cause, um, or at least for the short term. Um, It's certainly a lost cause with regards to this president. Um, You know, there's no hope that his his behavior is going to change. and there will certainly be people that he radicalizes on both sides. Um, you know, you, you'll see, um, uh, you know, supporters of the president um, who never, I, I don't think, would have imagined themselves defending a child molester, uh, defending a child molester. Um, and, you know, I, I think that rightly there will be many people on the left who are just so disgusted by him that it makes it hard for them going forward to even listen to Republican and conservative leaders who enabled him um, and and give them a fair shake, even after he's gone. Um, So I do think that there's long-term damage related to this. Um, That said, I also do believe that Trump, you know, Trump didn't just happen to us, right? Like we're we're a democracy. Uh, you know, he didn't win the popular vote, of course, but he did win the electoral Absolutely. college. He did win the Republican primary overwhelmingly. He's not just a king who ascended to the throne, and so he is the result of problems that that are that have been created by us. Um, you know, we did this as as the American people. Um, you know, even in a sense, people that didn't vote for him 
have you know a responsibility to be part of this because our the society and the culture that we've created resulted in this and in in, in large part because of what you're saying our small community uh, you know the um divisiveness within our community um and uh you know we are uh, very much self segregating ourselves um uh, in 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 social media bubbles um in you know community bubbles um and you know that while i have no kind of nostalgia for the good old days of the 50s and the 60s which had all their problems and which had obviously black and uh, other minorities completely you know outside of the culture um it also you know uh, was a culture that forced a coming together um you know with with those very important exceptions noted and and so now how can we you know translate how can we bring back the the good parts of that you know type of culture where where there is an engagement where there is an understanding where you have a feeling of humanity about um of those who disagree with you and uh, boy I, how do you i don't know how to put that together besides the fact that everybody needs to be mindful of that in their own personal lives and and, and that we all need to refocus and commit ourselves to it because um you know, a, a healthy culture would not have elected Donald Trump president of the United States. Um, in a lot of ways, he's downstream from that. Yeah, no, that's true. And I apologize to interrupt, but in a lot of ways, we all have to remain culpable for, for the choices that we make, you know, whether that was casting a ballot in a certain direction or even just um, staying within our own uh, enclaves of information. I guess I am curious, though, and even though that there's, you know, blame to be shared all around in terms of how we actually evaluate dialogue and, and rhetoric and community and just even acknowledging that there are different folks with different backgrounds and different views. Right now, specifically on the Republican side, uh, you've worked for um, folks aspiring to be president. I think right now that there would be many Democrats that would have loved uh, or that would continue – would love to see some of the, the, the folks um, – the fine men that you worked for in that Oval Office instead of who we have right now. Um, and yet there is this brand of republicanism that is forming in which you can either color it with what Trump is doing by way of um, his foreign policy, his climate policy, his immigration policy, or you can see republicanism in a different light, perhaps a little bit more pure and germane to the likes of the platforms of Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney. Um, is there a difference between those different types of Republican views? And, and if there is, what does it mean to be a Republican right now in America and not support our own president of the party? Jeb's looking good these days, isn't he? Everybody's you're, everybody's <laughs> yearning for Jeb, um, you know, if only, uh, or Willard. Um, you know, um, I, I do think that there are uh, there's a significant chunk of Republicans and conservatives that are repulsed by the president. Um, unfortunately, sure. there is a subsector of that chunk that um, has, because I, I, I do think going back to the tribalistic nature of our society right now has has justified it and has um, convinced themselves that uh, the Democrats are just as bad. The liberals are terrible. Um, uh, we can't give an inch. 
and you know i've got to defend my guys and um i don't really like trump and i don't really like the you know tweeting but um you know i do support tax reform and neil gorsuch and so i'm just going to go along to get along right. and 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 trump benefited greatly from those voters and i think in a sense they were the key voters in the electorate from my point of view because um if you looked at um there was an unprecedented number in the exit polls, and it showed that of, of 19% of voters did not like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. This is unprecedented. In modern polling, you know, usually only 5% of voters d- dislike both candidates. Um, this time it was 19%, one in five. Among those voters, Trump won by huge, huge margins. And in the key states, even greater margins in Wisconsin and Florida, he won by over 30 percent with those voters who, who disliked both. So these are the people that we're talking about. These are people that voted for Mitt Romney or Jeb or Marco and are general, genuinely decent people. Um, but they were so radicalized by conservative media, um, by their hatred for the Clintons by, um, you know, uh, disgust for, um, you know, what's been happening in Washington over the last two decades, that they just took a chance on Trump. And um, I, I give those those folks no excuse. Um, uh, you know, I, I strongly argued with many of them and continue to. Um, but in order for us to get our politics back to normal, it's a, it's a key constituency, and they need to be won over. And, um I fall uh, guilty of this um, sometimes, but it's easy to kind of tweet them with disdain and mockery. Um, uh, But, you know, eventually, hopefully we don't have a nuclear attack where the the country is destroyed. uh, And and barring that, we will have a time post-Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, somehow, you know, this country needs to be able to come together and have a healthy you know, party system again and have a healthy discourse again. And some people that voted for Donald Trump need to be a part of that. Um, and so that's a big challenge. Um, and it's tough. And it's why I moved to California, because being in Washington and arguing these with these people is very depressing. Um, but, um, you know, what way the party goes is, um, is still up in the air. And unfortunately, my dark prediction is that I, I do think the party is descending more and more into Trumpism and that the future Republicans will be uh, more like Trump and that there will be a small group of us that peel off from the party altogether. Um, but that fight is not over yet, and it's one that I intend to wage. It's a very optimistic outlook, Tim. Um, yeah, you, you haven't even heard the real dark stuff yet. I've, kinda, I've, kept, it, I've kept it PG for the audience. You bottle it up. I don't want to get, uh, I don't wanna Tim get Miller. sad over the Thanksgiving holiday. I appreciate that. When we come back, Tim is going to tell us how we actually save our future from this grim and slow decline. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. 
So, so Tim, you know, you you mentioned something that was really, really important, and what is very easy to do, and is probably only continuing to create gulfs between um, communities and you know enclaves of information. And that was the 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 click of a button, um, the triggering of a text or of, of a retweet that is chock full of mockery and disdain. And this goes both ways. It's not just. Um, uh, you know, Democrats or liberals or progressives or anti-Trumpers um, who can all too quickly point to those that are supportive of our president's words. Um, it cuts the other way in which you have a, a number of, um, you know, folks that maybe are on the other side of that aisle that are in President Trump's corner that can easily point to the 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 liberal elitism latte sipping absurdity and, and hypocrisy of perhaps uh, Democrats and what those progressive institutions stand for when at all this talk of Roy Moore we also have you know uh, scandals and conversations breaking about Democrats like uh, you know Conyers or sorry Al Franken um, so that mockery and disdain can be a quick trigger for all of us um, but it, it doesn't necessarily solve anything for that. Um, in order to to solve for any kind of healing, both in terms of policy and ideology, or in terms of um, just coming together as a country that doesn't self-segregate, um, we need a little bit more bridge building. And I know that's way easier said than done. Um, but right now, um, one way in which bridge, bridges are either defined or destroyed um, can be through the way our our public uh, elective districts are actually carved out. And each, um, you know, every couple of decades when we have a chance to run a new census through the U.S. Census Bureau, um, it also gives judges and localities a chance to draw the lines of who makes up the congressional districts or the local districts that eventually put our leaders into office. Um, does redistricting or just the way the census is administered uh, and the follow-on way in which territories are carved out to elect individuals to office, does that really – is that playing a big role in the way that that mockery and disdain or self-segregation is going to continue to impact our politics or our political landscape? Or is that just something – an institution core to the way our American democracy functions that it's bigger than that or it's beyond that? Um. Boy, you know, here's the thing. I hate to uh, puncture, you know, the optimistic, uh, earnest liberal souls that listen to this podcast. Um, I'm for (laughs) redistricting reform on balance. Um, You know, I I think that the system that we have is is kind of ridiculous. Um, But I also just don't think that it's that big of a deal. And I think that it matters on the margins. Um, And here's why. Uh, the problem is that we are redistricting ourselves um, culturally, and so sure, you know there are some ridiculous examples. I think there's a, in Texas, you know, uh, around Austin, they have districts that are, that look like a, a pumpkin pie, so that you only get the liberals in Austin, like you know, in uh, in the in the small thin part of the pie to kind of divide them all up, and then the thick part of the pie is all of the rural parts of Texas, to, so that they all can be Republican districts. Um, and Austin only gets like you know one Democrat uh, member. That's silly. That's ridiculous. It should be fixed. But that is it's not a fix to our to the tribalism. It's not a fix to the uh, increasing. Um, ex- extremism within within our Congress. Iowa 
where I've done a lot of campaigns uh, is a state that district uh, that is um, that the judges uh, draw the districts. Well, as I'm sure your listeners know, a fam- famous Iowa uh, member of Congress is Steve King, um, who is in Iowa four. Um, he's maybe one of the probably the most anti-immigrant, one of the top five most extreme Republicans in in, in Congress. There's no redistricting that's going to get that's going to bring a moderate into that seat. The problem is there aren't any Democrats that live in in, in Western Iowa. Um, there aren't any moderates that live in Western Iowa. Um, and and this is true across the country. The young, college-educated people. Um, I'm sure some of whom who listen to this podcast, and I'm, it's nothing. I'm not. Uh, I'm not assailing your honor, but this is just a fact. They're born in Duluth, Minnesota, or in Waterloo, Iowa, or wherever, and you know they you know go to their liberal college and then graduate and go get a job working for Facebook, and they live out here with us in San Francisco, or they live in D.C., or they live in New York, or they live in Boston, and so uh, you know as long as we're segregating ourselves then redistricting is not going to be a fix to the problem. And, you know, for, for I, I think that what my advice would be to Democrats and, and progressives is to um, encourage and build and grow incubators and, you know, communities uh, that are like, like is happening in Pittsburgh and it's happening in other, you know, cities all around the country. Youngstown, because, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. You got to go to America. You have to move out into the rest of America because as long as all the liberals live in San Francisco and L.A. and New York and D.C., uh, you know, nothing redistricting isn't going to make any difference. You're just going to move around the, you know, chess pieces for, you know, different, different, you know, kind of conservatives. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And, and let me ask you this, I mean, this may not be a well-received question by listeners. Um, and it may even come across as a little naive, but, you know, we often talk about and re- refer to uh, real America as maybe the geographies where the 63 million Trump voters um, cast their ballots for our president, um, or the, it's the flyover states, or it's the non-coastal states because that's not where the the quote unquote elites are. And you know, this past year we had AOL um, co-founder and, C- and once upon a time CEO Steve Case. Uh, do what was a called a rise of the rest tour in which he was specifically advocating for technology firms and venture capitalists and entrepreneurial thinkers to start eyeing those middle parts of the country to start up their businesses and and I guess I'm curious are we only further uh, furthering this distinction between what is quote unquote real America versus the rest of America or real America and the elite America with that same sense of mockery and disdain as we were talking about earlier when you have these liberal elites talking among themselves about the need to to reclaim the mantle of the country by investing in the middle of the country um, is that does that like smack of some amount of um, self righteousness yeah. we know better than you well look um, I obviously the phrase real America is ridiculous real America is very diverse right i mean the the cities that look the most like america is you know probably houston or you know something like that Uh, a city that has um a a great diversity to it so um let's you know put that aside your point is are are these coastal kind of elites tech elites you know you know when they talk about going out to fly over country do they do it a condescending way and i think that yes uh, you know they're definitely 
should be everybody should watch their language and it's a little ironic that it's the kind of you know conservative trolls that make fun of snowflakes on college campuses to get their feelings hurt every time um you know their culture is mocked uh and so but it is it's true it is what it is uh you know people uh, uh it does affect people's self-perception and it does breed you know mutual contempt and um so that that you know the in these pockets of prosperity that are largely liberal communities, um, you know, with the exception of probably Texas um, and some of the other oil states, um, people in these pockets of prosperity should be conscious of how they talk about it. But I, I don't think that they should um, stop you know, kind of the process of the project of what the case is doing. You know, it, uh, this our, our problem, our cultural divide is only going to get worse if there are no jobs in Nebraska. Right. But I mean, we need to create we need to figure out an economy that that, that of the future that has jobs in the, you know, that includes jobs in Nebraska and South Dakota and Iowa. Right. I and mean, they can't all just be in these tech hubs. And um, and that's a major public policy problem. Nobody in in Washington really seems that interested in public policy problems right now. So I, I think that, that, that they're going to have to the answers do have to come from. Uh, the business community. And, and so I, 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 you know, potentially, I guess I haven't watched the case thing that closely. Maybe there's, there's been some condescending language and folks should be mindful of that. But the, the principle of the project is a good one. No, I think I think you're right, and I, I definitely didn't mean to to cast any aspersions on how Steve Case or others sure. may be touting these pieces. I mean, you've even seen um, uh, CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg um, or even Congressman Ro Khanna spend time in areas that they don't necessarily spend their daily lives in in the in the quote unquote rest of the country. And I do think that American experiment, if it is about building a more perfect union, requires more engagement with one another. Um, I yeah, guess I, I just really I, quick I on that Zuckerberg. A lot of these like Twitter power users like mocked that again because of the mockery from what he was doing. And I just that was one thing I didn't understand. So I was like, if you lived through the 2016 election and saw Donald Trump become the president and that did not make you question whether or not you were out of touch and did not make you want to travel outside your bubble, then I I think you're the weird one. So uh, I totally I I related to what to what Zuckerberg was was trying to do with that. Yeah. And, you know, it comes down to you. You raise a really, really good point, you know, whether it's a business CEO or whether it's a candidate or frankly, if it's even just a a high school junior or senior trying to better understand the world around them and the workforce and the world they're about to enter into after they they do some additional higher education or vocational training. um, You know, you've had experience advising presidential candidates. Um, You live out in the Bay Area where a lot of new technologies are begging the questions of what jobs of the future will look like, whether those technologies are replacing currently configured jobs or adding new ones. Um, What do you anticipate uh, presidential candidates, either on the left or the right or in the middle, um, saying uh, as we run up to 2020 in the primaries here about this new economy? Is it about investing in a new American identity in which the concept of a, a job is changing? Or is it about investing in a American economy that allows those technologies on the coasts to, to bridge into those manufacturing facilities in the middle of the country? Um, how would you advise a, a forthcoming candidate to start talking about this and thinking about this? This is going to be... Um... 
a big challenge for Democratic candidates. I mean, you know, Trump is going to run in 2020, and so Trump will run on, um, you know, the same kind of ridiculous things that he ran on last time, like bringing back the coal jobs. I, I do hope that there will be a challenge to him, that a challenge to Trump that's credible needs to be needs to come from really a, a, a staunch conservative, um, and their their campaign against him pro- needs to be really more about his kind of failed promises. Um, and I think that they're going to need to speak to Trump voters, you know, about um, kind of more of the sort of meat and potatoes, blue collar jobs. And, you know, I just I don't think at least where we are right now in 2019, there's going to be a, a, a meaningful Republican message. Though there are some messengers. Uh, Jeb and Marco talked about this very well. I just don't know that there's a constituency right now on the right for, you know, kind of talking about you know, the future of work from a tech perspective. Uh, On the Democratic side, um, there is a constituency for this, but there's a problem. And and I'm just, I'm looking at this purely from a political eye, not from a policy eye. And that is that the Democrats need to either, A, you know, bring back the Obama-Trump kind of rural union voter that they lost, or B, win over people like me, uh, more of us, the Romney Hillary voter. Um, there were not enough of those last time. That's going to be college-educated suburban sort of voters. And and then while doing that, they need to to turn up the turnout among minorities and, and young voters. But but just speaking to those first two groups, the message for each of them is really different when it comes to this, right? When it comes to this question about the future of work, and I, and I think that. Um, you know, there is going to be a lot far less tech skepticism on kind of the Mitt Hillary crowd. They will want to hear from candidates talking about a technological solution, uh, whereas I think that a lot of these voters uh, in that were Obama Trump voters are, are going to be very skeptical of that, um, that and because of what they've seen in their in their communities. So, you know, a Democrat is going to have to come up with a message that is compelling um, that that is also tangible for you know kind of these Obama Trump voters and makes it seem like they're in touch with them and not get kind of caught up in you know VC speak about all of the great things that's going to come from AI. You know I, I think most people are very <laughs> concerned about what's going to happen with AI. Um, and and maybe the VCs are right, right? And that's why I think that there are a lot of different players involved here. You know and and that that. You know, maybe there is a technological solution to the to the job drain in in rural America, um, but uh, until you know there's something tangible, I think that politicians you know, are going to have to be more mindful of 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 you know what of the lived experiences of people in these communities. And in some of those politicians, you know, just to round out our conversation here, have been taking a, a particularly interesting approach. You know, in this conversation, we've identified everything from how technology is implicating the workforce and the labor markets to the behavior of the way we're consuming information and deciding to support or reject information to the behavior and the etiquette and, frankly, the the inappropriate conduct of individuals in power. All of this is creating this morass of what – um, what it means 
place to to feel empowered to take a stand to have a voice um, to bridge past this current time of of concern. Um, but it's also creating a lot of individuals that are a little nervous and and really want to walk away from this type of engagement. Um, you know, you've written about how even folks like Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona have felt this vibe of wanting to lay down their arms and just not play ball and go toe-to-toe with this president anymore. Um, Some people who, uh, like you or I, spent a lot of time in D.C. or working for politicians have, as you said, geographically left um, the game, although you could you can fight the game for many different perches. Um, what do you say to the individual um, kid who you know is student body president or is thinking about a career in public service, but you know is maybe turned off about what they're seeing right now? Is there a way for us as Americans to form an identity in which leadership, compassion, and and really trying to figure out a new moral authority for what it means to be an American comes together? Um, and if so, how do we actually convince folks that are turned off from even engaging these conversations, knowing that discussion is core to healing? How do we actually encourage people to talk again, care again, and, and do so in a constructive and meaningful way? Big. Uh, that's a big demand for me, Vic. Um, uh, <laughs> All I, on you, I'll, Timmy. Yeah, I'll take the smaller part of that first. Uh, I would say to young people that um, they should do what they're passionate about. And I, I'll just a brief anecdote about me, the, the, about what, how I came to that. You know, I, I think like most people who are interested in politics, when I was that 17, I was very earnest and, and excited um, um, and, you know, believed passionately about, you know, the issues. Um, and that's what got me into politics. I quickly moved to being jaded. Um, and kind of, you know, worked for you know, politicians just because I wanted to win the game. Like it was a sports sport. I liked it in the way I liked sports. And I've, I've really come yeah. full circle around from that um, and, and sort of seen the um, damage that that kind of view of, of public life has uh, is doing to our society. And, um, and so uh, with that, kind of decade and a half of wisdom of my, my message to young people would be do what you're passionate about and work for for people that you feel passionately about and don't don't work for people because you're trying to plot out a career you know and three chess moves ahead of time because we just you know nobody knew that Donald Trump was going to be the president literally nobody and so you know for if you're sitting in your chair right now trying to to calculate what job you need to become press secretary for Kamala Harris, you're doing it wrong because we don't, we don't know what, what you don't know. Nobody knows. Um, and what you should do is go find something that you're passionate about and, and go work for it and, and do it again in somewhere, somewhere else probably from where you grew up um, or, or maybe uh, depending on where you grew up in your, in your community, I guess, let me rephrase that somewhere else from Washington, Um, you know, politics, things are getting done in a lot of States, things are getting done in a lot of cities. And so, you know, if you're frustrated by the rancor of Washington and, but you love politics, I, I, I loved the jobs that I did working in governor's races in Colorado and, um, you know, going and, and living in Iowa for a few years and in southern Virginia. And, uh, you know, I think that gives you a different perspective and you bring a healthy perspective to those communities. So um, that would be my, you know, my advice. And, you know, there are options, there are things to do that are that are useful and valuable that don't necessarily get you into the, 
mud fight of of what is a pretty depressing and despicable national political environment right now. I think that's that's a great note of optimism that you know at the end of the day, um, regardless of how American identity is being retooled or what barbs are being thrown about, um, insofar as we you know dig into our passion and, and try and reach out to other people and frankly other geographies along the way, um, then we've got um, as American of an undertaking as you can have. Uh, Tim Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for being a friend of the pod. And thank you for BuzzFeed for calling him pukish because he seems pretty damn delightful to me. <laughs> Thanks, man. And happy Thanksgiving to everybody. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.